Welcome back to another episode of Writing for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take an inside look at the authors transforming our lives and shaping the world. Hello, I'm Drew Dick. I'm your host. I'm an editor and author, uh, and I am really excited about uh, the guest we have today. I've joked around about how this podcast is kind of my excuse to talk to um, my favorite authors and my friends. And this guy, we go back a, a ways. Dan Darling is going to join us here in a second. He is a popular author and speaker. He's the author of, um, oh man, I'm losing count. I think about eight books at this point, including The Original Jesus, The Dignity Revolution, The Characters of Christmas, Away With Words, and his latest book, which is is brand new, so hot off the press. I don't even have my physical copy yet, uh, but it's titled the characters of Easter, the villains, heroes, cowards, and crooks who witnessed history's biggest miracle. Uh, for years, Dan worked for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and now is VP of Communications for Religious National Broadcasters. He's also um, the host of his own podcast, uh, The Way Home Podcast. Dan, welcome to this podcast. Well, thank you, Drew. I'm glad to be on here. This is like, you know, getting on Jimmy Fallon or something. <laughs> exactly. I didn't want to have to say it, but I appreciate you saying that. It's it's a huge deal. And and for the listeners, I just want to um, tell them we go back quite a few years. So when we were both living in the Chicago area um, and I was working for Leadership Journal, I uh, got you writing for Leadership Journal. And since then, you have gone on to do all these amazing big deal things and I don't want to, I don't want to mislead anyone. I don't want to exaggerate, but um, I feel like all that success is, is basically um, from me it, it, that I kind of pushed you almost against your will into being a best-selling author, uh, a speaker. And that without me, you'd probably be living in your mom's basement playing video games. Is that right? That's basically it. That's basically <laughs> my life story. When I give my testimony, that's the part that really has people tearing up and walking forward. Um, but it is true. It is true. I mean, like I think about this a lot. Um, I remember us having lunch across from Christianity today, you know, the, and we had, we ate at this place that had amazing chicken tenders. If you remember that. Yeah. And the uh, the Carol stream tavern or something, I could be getting that wrong, but I remember the chicken tenders. It's so weird because I remember, um, you know, looking at Leadership Journal and Christianity Today when I was like wanting to get published and, and working, you know, I, I was working for a Christian organization. I was writing and editing and doing stuff, but I like hadn't done a lot of my own stuff. And I was starting to dip my toe in the water and like try to get published different places. And that this was back when there were magazines, when you had to send right. a self-addressed remember stamp those envelope. Kids? Yes. And, <laughs> yeah. And get rejected. And I remember looking at Leadership Journal and reading this and being like, there's no way I'll ever be in here. There's no way I'll ever do that. And so something prompted us to have lunch and then we got to know each other. And then I started writing for Leadership Journal. And, you know, it was honestly to be able to say and have on my uh, like resume or portfolio, or whatever, has contributed to Christianity Today was huge. It right. opened so many doors. So I yes, do credit yes. you for opening a lot of doors for me. Even if I exaggerated a little bit about my influence on your life, but yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, well, you've got this brand new book out right now and full disclosure, I had the honor of working on it as one of the editors and it's extremely timely, the characters of Easter. 
And I, one thing I love about this book is that, I don't know, maybe this is just me, so weird confession, but sometimes I can become a little uh, numb to the miracle of Christmas. Like it's almost like it's old hat. Maybe it's because I grew mm-hmm. up in the church. I've heard a thousand sermons about Easter. Uh, and of course, it's ridiculous because it's the most bizarre and beautiful event, not to mention the source of our hope that Jesus was raised from the dead. And what I love about this book is that it gives readers a fresh look at Easter by looking at the characters, some honorable, some not so honorable, that were present at the first Easter. Can you tell me a little bit about what you hope this accomplishes for readers? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I it's it's the same thing with me. I grew up in the church and um, Christmas and Easter are both, you know, every year, but you can get a little bit, not jaded, but kind of like, yeah, we know the story. I think even more so for Easter, you know, Christmas, you get about six weeks, maybe two months where we're thinking about it. And you're in that kind of like, you have all the feels for like a month and a half. Uh, Whereas Easter, unfortunately, especially if, if you're in kind of a low church environment, it kind of sneaks up on you. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, Easter's next week. Um, which is why I'm glad to see the resurgence in like uh, liturgy and celebrating Lent because mm. I think it broadens it out a little bit. But, you know, I've always liked character profiles. And I, when I was a kid and uh, even in college, I would listen to guys like Chuck Swindoll do these character profiles, these preaching series yes, like Moses and Joseph. And I'd be totally captivated by that. And I've always enjoyed that. I like reading biographies. So I always thought like, what would it look like to profile the ordinary people who are caught up in the story of Easter, right? Like Peter and John and uh, Pilate and, you know, the religious leaders or like Barabbas, right? Like it's just suddenly, Hey, you're free. (laughs) I mean, like how bizarre was that for him? And so I, I really enjoy this. And I, I think the hope is to really have Christians, um, look at Easter from a fresh perspective and, um, really come to uh, rekindle their love for Christ and their appreciation of the the death and resurrection of Christ. And I I hope for people who are seekers, you know, who Mm -hmm. know about Easter and maybe are on the, on the periphery of it. Maybe this could be a a gateway into them uh, really engaging with the Christian faith. Absolutely. And it's a very accessible book. Um, So I, I think that that's realistic. Uh, So I think sometimes we can be a little hard on the disciples, um, especially Peter and John and kind of like, oh man, had I been there, I would have stuck with Jesus. I want to run away. I certainly wouldn't have denied knowing who he was. Um, But I think sometimes that's because we don't understand, you know, what went down and how hard it was for them. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about their experience as the people who are closest to Jesus um, and their actions surrounding Easter? Yeah, uh, I, I really like profiling, particularly Peter and John, uh, and I, I I have a chapter on Thomas as well. But we know a lot more about like Peter and John, particularly. Um, these were young men. We forget that they were very young men when Jesus uh, called them to follow him. Uh, Peter and John, particularly, were on the shores of Galilee. You know, they had a they they had a um, pretty stable fishing. Uh, business, a fishing collective, if you will, like they would uh, do commercial fishing and they would uh, get it and either sell it locally or it would get distributed over to the Mediterranean around the Roman Empire. 
it was a good living. Uh, what's interesting to me too is um, Jesus had based his ministry in Capernaum, which is where he found Peter and, and John. But it's likely they interacted before Peter or before John called them. Hmm. I mean, sorry, before Jesus called Peter yeah. and John, you know, uh, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. You know, Jesus had set up his ministry there. Peter and Andrew were the, had moved there. Uh, James and John had their um, fishing ministry there, or, uh, fishing business there. So I just wonder, like, did they interact in the market? Did they interact in the um, synagogue? And even before Jesus revealed himself and what that was like. Um, the other thing I think is really fascinating about Peter particularly is that when we read the gospels, we kind of like, we tend to think that there was one mo singular moment where Peter left everything and followed Jesus. But if you f look at the the timeline, Jesus was kind of calling Peter step-by-step. Step. Hmm. Like he healed his mother-in-law. Peter had hosted Jesus at his house. There was a couple interactions with Jesus. And then there was the moment of, you know, follow me and I'll make you fishers yes. of men. And it's very similar to us. Like there's sometimes a big dramatic moment, but then it's a series of Jesus kind of wooing us and chasing after us. Yeah, that's right. And, and his, his redemption, if you want to put it that way, when Jesus reinstates him is also mm -hmm. similarly incremental. That's really interesting to think of it that way. Um, you mentioned Thomas, um, and you say that we often misunderstand Thomas. How should we think about Thomas and the doubts he brought to Jesus? We do misunderstand Thomas. I hate that he's doubting Thomas um, mm -hmm. because that kind of stuck with him, didn't it? Right. <laughs> that title. But again, let's let's listen. Let let's think about what he gave up. Just like Peter and John, he gave up three years of his life to follow this itinerant rabbi. Um, you know, this was a radical thing he did. Gave up his future. Gave up whatever he was doing. To follow Jesus, and he was part of the you know the inner twelve. I mean, Jesus had hundreds of disciples who were committed, but then it narrowed right. down to twelve who were his like core, and then obviously Peter, James, and John who were like his closest. But Thomas was in that inner twelve. He he had followed Jesus. He had given up a lot, and we see him make some really amazing statements when Jesus is about to go to Bethany. Um, and the, you know, he knows it's going to be dangerous because his enemies are there. Thomas says, well, let's go and we'll die with Jesus. Like he was ready to die with Jesus. Oh, right. okay. I'll, I'll give my life. I'll die. So he was not a coward. He was bold. Uh, and then, uh, in the upper room, when Jesus is talking about the future, um, he says, he asked Jesus is laying out. He says, I'm the way, the truth. You know, Jesus says, I go to prepare a, a, a place for you. Thomas asks a great question. Well, if you're going there, how can we know the way? Like he asks really good questions. And hmm. that question prompted Jesus to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So actually, Thomas's questions give us some of the most profound theological answers in the Bible. And then, of course, there's the scene in the upper room where uh, he's he had doubted Jesus. And and I think we need to look at the background of Thomas a little bit to say why he got to that place. Jesus had been arrested. He, you know, their hopes and dreams for the, the kingdom of God had really been dashed. All the disciples fled except for John. Peter denied him. 
by the way, we would have fled too. We, we would have got out of town <laughs> Absolutely. too. Because they thought they'd be arrested. They didn't know what was going on. Those three days be, you know, before Thomas knew Jesus rose from the dead were probably some of the hardest days of their lives. Hmm. Like questioning, did I put every, did I bet everything on a false idea? Did I give up, waste three years of my life? And so the, the disciples obviously saw Jesus without Thomas. And what, one of the things I think is interesting is the, the text makes a note that that first time in the upper room when Jesus appeared to them, that Thomas wasn't there. In oh, other words, yeah. they cared that he wasn't there. There was a hole. There was something missing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, they, and they dragged him back to Jesus. So Thomas has got these doubts and these fears, and he has this community that will not let him sink further. They, they are pulling him toward Jesus and saying, you've got to go. So he finally comes. Jesus shows this, the scars, of course, which, by the way, Thomas, Thomas's questions give us that whole narrative because he asked that. We know that Jesus had those scars. Right. Um, but then what does he do? He says, my Lord and my God. He has a profound statement of worship to Jesus mm-hmm. to say, of I see that you're risen from the dead. The only logical response is to worship. And then, of course, tradition says that Thomas went to India and evangelized India. So I, I think we get him wrong. He had really good questions, but when his questions were met with with answers, he worshiped, right? He yes. he he, yeah. he asked the good kind of questions. Yes. And it's it's a great model of healthy doubt, right? It um, is. D- doubt that doesn't lead to to loss of faith or cynicism, but like you said, uh, culminates in worship. I love that. And I'm just grateful for Thomas too, because it's like, yeah, I, I've got some doubts too. Uh, yeah. And it's okay. Jesus dealt with them. He didn't just uh, boot him out of the, out of the camp. <laughs> right. And, and, and they dragged him. What I love is that they were not going to let Thomas not see Jesus. Yeah. I've you never know, thought it, of that aspect of it before the community, but I love that. I mean, they, they were going to make sure he saw Jesus. And I think we need more Thomases in the church and people who ask good questions, but who also once, once their questions uh, are answered, they, they worship. And ultimately, honest, true questions and mm-hmm. honest, true seeking ultimately always leads to Jesus. It, ju- it just does. Yes. Amen. Um, you cover, I mean, not only the disciples, Thomas, um, uh, the women at the, at the uh, tomb. Um, but you look at some real villains too, which I think is really interesting. So Judas, of course, even the executioners, uh, what can we learn by taking a close look at folks like that? Um, it, it is interesting to look, uh, you know, I, I, I profiled the, the, some of the disciples, you know, Peter and John and Thomas, and then the, the three women who are witnesses. But then I profile some of the sort of infamous people in the Eastern narrative. Um, so you think of Pilate, who's just a fascinating figure who mm. really stands at the apex of history and he doesn't want to be there. He'd rather right. be anywhere else. It's like that Southwest Airlines commercial, you, you want to get away. Like he wanted out of it. <laughs> His wife's pressuring him. You know, I had a vision and you shouldn't do this. And he's got he can't mess this up because he's already in trouble with the, um, you know, with his governorship. There's already been unrest he had to put down. Roman's watching him very carefully. He can't screw this up, but he knows Jesus is innocent and he's just trying to make it work. And he's asking, he's basically asking Jesus, can you help me out here? Can you throw, can, mm-hmm. can you give me something? 
throw me a bone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When honestly, <laughs> yeah. And honestly, it we think that Jesus is on trial, but really Pilate's on trial before Jesus. And Jesus mm. is actually pursuing him with all these probing questions. It's really fascinating. But then you have the religious leaders and you have the Roman executioners. Now, it's interesting. I learned a lot about uh, the religious leaders in the sense that, um, you know, I think we we flatten that a little bit and get that wrong. Who exactly was against Jesus? Uh, you have, you know, the Pharisees who were most of the common people in Israel were Pharisees. Uh, they were skeptical of Roman power, but they weren't like radicals like Simon the Zealot or Insurrect. They were kind of, and they really wanted spiritual renewal. So they were upset with Jesus because mm-hmm. they felt like he was blaspheming. And in some ways, those instincts were good because they had been burned before by false messiahs. Uh, but obviously, they missed Jesus. But it was the Sadducees. It was the one who's who'd accommodated themselves to Roman power who wanted Jesus killed because, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was upsetting that delicate balance. So we kind of talk about those people and then the Romans, they were just carrying out the execution. And I think it's fascinating to see the centurion uh, standing there at the foot of the cross saying, surely this must've been the son of God. Uh, mm-hmm. And and you just want to let your mind wander and say, what happened to that person? Did he become a follower of Jesus afterwards? Is, is he the same person in Acts that we see Peter visiting? Uh, is that Cornelius? Right. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, Fascinating to think think about that. Yeah, but you know it made an impact. Absolutely to see that. Yeah, um, it really did. And obviously then Barabbas, I think, is a fascinating character as well. Yeah, talk about him a little bit. So, you know, we don't know much about Barabbas, honestly, other than that um, he was an insurrectionist, which, you know, when I was writing the book and we were talking about insurrectionists, I had to explain what that is, but that <laughs> that term's become more in vogue lately. Um, yes. But, you know, there was a spectrum of of the way that people viewed Rome. All the Jewish people hated the fact that they were under Roman rule, except for maybe mm-hmm. the Sadducees and the Herodians who, were, who, who accommodated themselves, but most people were. But there was a spectrum. I mean, you had, you had Pharisees who resisted that, but they also were thinking spiritual renewal. But then you had people who are more antagonistic. I think Judas, for instance, is someone like that who uh, was probably more of a zealot, Simon the Zealot. But then you had Barabbas who was, you know, an insurrection. Like he would commit acts of murder and terrorism in order to, you know, to in, 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 like almost domestic terrorism. He was kind of a mercenary that would do that. Mm-hmm. So he was on trial along with the other two for for insurrection. But that was the charge they were putting on Jesus, which Pilate knew that Jesus wasn't guilty of that because Jesus said, my, my kingdom's not of this world. You know, even when Peter tries right. to kill the centurion and Jesus stops that he could have summoned 10,000 angels. But the fascinating thing about Barabbas is that imagine you're him and you're in that cell and you know you're going to be executed and you're you're thinking about your life. Maybe you're writing notes to people you love, trying to make amends. Maybe you're sorry for what you did. You, you th- you're you just, you're just thinking this is the end. And then there's a knock on the, on the cell door, the, the door opens and inexplicably they say, oh yeah, you're set free. There's mm-hmm. some, some radical teacher here that is going to be executed in your place. You're set free. You know, Pilate had given 
every year he would give the Jewish people, they'd be able to release one prisoner. And he thought, I think, that by releasing, like by offering Barabbas or Jesus, they would pick Jesus because everyone despised Barabbas, right? Right. That's a no-brainer. But they pick Barabbas. Right. Right. But he's actually a microcosm for all of us that Jesus took his place. Oh, and I, I again, that. my imagination wanders. Did, did Barabbas fully appreciate that Jesus took his place physically? But I wonder if he ever became a Christian. Like, wouldn't mm. it be cool if we get to heaven and it's like, yeah, he became a Christian and he planted a church and he became this great preacher or something, you know, <laughs> because Jesus That's took awesome. his place. But that is really, I mean, Barabbas is really the story of Easter. It's mm. Jesus took our place. We should have been on that cross and he took our place. Totally. Amen. Yeah, exactly. It's a perfect analog for all of us. Um, and yet it's so easy to gloss over because it seem, it's just a seemingly, you know, not insignificant, but a, a little detail in the story. And I'm so glad that you dwelt on it. Um, I want to ask you some questions about your writing. And actually, the first one relates to the book, though. Um, you know, I as I was reading this book, I learned things and I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for new knowledge. You know, when I read a book, a nonfiction book, I want to learn something new. Uh, and honestly, I was a little surprised that I learned things. Maybe I'm a little full of myself, but I went to seminary. I'm like, okay, this will all be old hat to me. I'll know this. <laughs> uh, but it was awesome. You know, things about the ancient world and little insights into the different characters um, that, that really just were interesting and made the story come to life for me again in a new way. Uh, and yet, like I said earlier, it's a very accessible book. So for your average Christian or even unbeliever, they're going to benefit from it. So digging into this, the historical context, tell me a little bit about your research process. I'm curious about that. Yeah. So the research is different for every book. You know, if I'm writing a book on a kind of cultural topic, you know, I'm going to read a bunch of books in that field, right? So I wrote a book on uh, way with words about online civility. I wrote a bunch of stuff on that. And when I wrote my book on dignity, I wrote a bunch of stuff on that. I actually like writing books like the characters of Easter, characters of Christmas, because it's more like you're in a text, you know, you're in the text of scripture and studying it. So I really try to study, I study, I try to study passages, right? So mm -hmm. when I'm writing about these characters, for instance, Peter you know, there's so much in the scriptures about him from his books to he's in every gospel. Most people believe he, you know, Mark wrote the gospel of Mark, but it was Peter's gospel. And then he's, he's in Acts. So there's, I'm reading all those texts, but then I'm reading commentaries about them, um, you know, about each text. Now there's some that are more obscure. So Barabbas, there's a couple mentions in the gospels and I'm reading those texts and those commentaries about that. Uh, same with like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. And then I, I like to use, so I like to use commentaries, particularly for something like this and just read mm -hmm. a bunch of stuff on that. I also like to look at um, like New Testament uh, background books. So like N.T. Yes. Wright and mm -hmm. Michael Byrd have a great new uh, book on New Testament kind of background and theology. Um, I also, I have like, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an obsessive collector of study Bibles. <laughs> okay. And, that's and the weirdest habit. That's the weirdest habit. Yeah, of but I'm, I'm here for right. it. <laughs> but like, I've got half a dozen study Bibles. Those can be helpful too, yeah. because I found not just in the, um, the notes for those, but also the introduction for, um, 
some of the books have that. And like, for instance, the archaeological study Bible has these, a lot of in-depth information about the ancient world and about different facets of it and different the cultural stuff. So I just try to absorb myself into all of that for every character that I'm studying about and just try to come away with, do I know, how do I know them? And then, you know, putting it all on paper, that's the challenge, right? Absolutely. But the research is so important and you can tell, I think, when people shortchange that process and you certainly mm -hmm. didn't with this book. And I think it really pays off in the experience of reading it. Um, I love your newsletter, by the way, Dan has a newsletter. If you, if you want to, um, subscribe to it, it only costs what 50 bucks a month. No, it's no. actually free. It's, oh, it's a free, free newsletter. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> I'm sending called, you 50 bucks every month for no reason. You could still do that. It's called uh, one little word, <laughs> one uh, little word. which, right. which comes from, you know, Martin Luther's, uh, hymn, uh, mighty fortress. So there's that lyric in there. One little word shall fell him. I've gotten teased though, because it's, it's sometimes it's like a thousand words. So it's, it's, it's actually more than one little word, but I enjoy it. And I try to write a, on a variety of things. Yeah. That's what I love. It's, it's kind of all over the place in a good way. Um, but often you'll have these great writing tips and sometimes I'll read the newsletter to avoid doing my own writing. So I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> um, but recently you were talking about the importance of outlining, especially when it comes to tackling long projects like a book. Um, and, can you explain your, your, your process there? Yeah. So, you know, when I was a kid in uh, school, we had to do outlines constantly. I know about you, like with all of our writing assignments, we had to just, they make you do an outline, do it on note cards and then do it and then do your composition. I was like, man, I hate doing all this. I just want to write the thing. <laughs> but actually that training really stuck with me. Um, outlines are really important for a couple of reasons for me. Number one, um, you know, a long project can be intimidating, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a, an article can be fairly easy, you know, easy to put together, but a, a chapter that's maybe four to 5,000 words can be intimidating. And so I, I try to start at the beginning with the whole book, you know, outlining all the chapters, which you, which you sort of need to do in the publishing process. Your publisher wants to see right, for the proposal. what do the chapters yep. look like. That part is fun for me, actually. I like doing the chapter stuff. I don't know about you, but I love that. And that's where a lot of the creativity comes in. But then when I get to a um a chapter, you know, I like I think in outlines in hmm. some ways. So uh an outline does a couple things for me. Number one, it kind of gives me a sense of the flow and direction. And I think the reader needs that too. They need kind of hooks to know how to keep going. Um oh. For biblical text, it helps me a lot too. Like I will read a text over and over and then, a, or when I'm studying one of the characters for one of these books, studying over and over, and then it'll just kind of come to me like, here's how I'm going to divide this. And mm. it's really weird, Drew, but like, I'll be like in the shower or I'll be sitting uh, in church listening to a sermon and I'll have my like journal there and I'll be like, ah, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to divide it. I'll, I'll get like an outline in my head and I'll just start writing stuff down. The nice thing about an outline is you never go to a page blank, right? Because right. yeah, that's huge. And, and look in your outlines in pencil, like it's your, I like to tell people, this is your work. So like if you put, if you have your outline and then you go and do it and you're like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do that. Like you can do that. It's your stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not in concrete, but it just helps you think section by section and it breaks it down so it's not so intimidating. So if you have a chapter and say you have three or four sections, you can think about one section at a time. Like, here's how I'm going to do the intro. Here's how I'm going to talk about 
Peter's early life and what he was like growing up. Here's how I'm going to talk about these incidences in his life. Here's how I'm going to close. And he just kind of can hit it one section at a time. And then pretty soon you have a whole chapter. Uh, so it's really helpful. I don't know book. if you use outlines a lot too, but I, it just, it's really huge for me. No, that you're, you're so right. And just psychologically, it's easier to break it up like that because the, the prospect of thinking of, even though I've written a few books, when I think writing a whole book, 200 plus pages, mm. that's terrifying, right? But if you can break it, it up, that helps a lot. And I've been kind of a, a latecomer to that because I remember I had one uh, professor, writing professor, uh, and he, he basically said, when it comes to writing, there are two kinds of people. There are forest people and there are tree people. And mm. what he meant by that, forest people are the ones who kind of see the entire project at the outset, right? And they know where they're going to go with it. And then there are tree people, the ones that just have to plant like one tree at a time because they, they have no idea where they're going. <laughs> but then if you plant enough trees, then eventually you have a forest. And I've always been a tree person. I'm like, I don't know where this thing's going, but I'm just going to start writing and hopefully I'll get there. Unfortunately, yeah. I've found that that can, that can go sideways on you because what can happen if you don't have a clear outline of where you're going, you, your, your forest can be crooked. You can kind of go um, you know, in a direction for a couple of chapters that you don't end up using. And then you have to kind of go back and reorient and it's, it's painful and difficult. Yeah. Uh, and so I've, even though it doesn't come naturally to me to outline, I'm not like you, I don't love outlines. I don't, <laughs> I don't think in outlines, but man, is that ever a huge help when you do that at the outset for keeping you on track? You know, and, and I think you can like, it's interesting. Outlines don't hurt, hurt my creativity. Um, and so what you can do is you don't always have to work in order either. So let's say you're, you've got totally a particular bit of inspiration or an idea about what you want to do with part of your chapter. You can like write that out. Like if you have that, just sit down and do that. And then you can take that and put it where it needs to go. So yes. you don't have to be stuck to a wooden, like I've got to go this section to this section to this section. Right. Now, sometimes it will help keep you on track, but you know, you, you can do that. And I am, I don't know if it's the preacher in me, but I, like, I just, when I get an, I, let's say I have an assignment, like I've got to write about this and I'm just thinking about it, thinking about it. And then I will, the, the first part of my inspiration will come in. Oh, here's how I can, here's the three points I can do. Here's the five points, you know? And I usually try to alliterate that. Now in my, <laughs> I was just going to tease you. I'm like, do they all start with a P Dan? Right. Right. <laughs> now, or a theme. Now with my chapters, I don't quite do that. I'll do sections, you know, and they don't, they don't all have that, but, um, you know, I, I just think it's very helpful and you can do it in a loose way. Um, like in characters of Easter, I was beating myself up because the chapter on Peter's longer than any of the other chapters. And I was like, man, it's not consistent. They all need to be the same. And then I just got to a place where I'm like, there's just more on Peter. And like, I was just going to say, absolutely. More source okay. material. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's okay. And, Apparently it was okay with Moody because, you know, I didn't have to, I don't have to cut it down. As we much let as you thought, get away so. with it. We yeah. let you get away with it. <laughs> That's great. Hey, last question for you. Um, and I know it's a little weird. We're talking about your book. Now we're talking about the writing process, but really for the listeners of this podcast, I think we have people who just love books, love reading, and then people who are authors or are aspiring authors. Um, and I think this is very interesting to get that kind of inside peek at the writing process. Um, so what advice would you give? I know this is a tough question. It's kind of open-ended. What advice would you give to aspiring authors? Maybe they don't have much of a platform yet, but they have this 
they feel this call on their life to write or they have a message they want to deliver, how do they get started? Well, I, I would ask, I would say to ask yourself a few questions. Um, do you, do you, do you really like writing and do you enjoy the process? Um, what are your motivations? Uh, are, are, if you're entering it to say, well, I'd like to be famous or somebody told me I need a book. So then I, I have to like, <laughs> or do you really enjoy it? Like I, I heard, um, Tom Schreiner, who's a, uh, New Testament prof at Southern Seminary. I just interviewed him. He said, I love writing. Uh, and I've heard other people. I just love to do it. If you really do it and you really feel you got a message then I would say, um, be committed to it. You know, you're always going to write in the margins of your life. The idea that you're going to have a mountain stream with a cabin and, you know, people <laughs> serving you food and you Come can on, just don't crush write. my dreams, man. Right. You're, you're always going to have to do it in the margins, you know, uh, of, of your other job, of your life. If you really like to write and you feel God's calling you to do it, you will find time to do it. Uh, you, if you're someone who can't help, but not write, you'll, you'll find a way to do it. The second thing I would say is uh, build relationships. Uh, everything mm. is relational. Like I went to my first writing conference, like 15 years ago, didn't know anything, you know, and I just built relationship with editors. Those relations I still have. I mean, I went out to lunch with this famous editor from Leadership Journal and, you know. Um, <laughs> Change the course of your life. I know. We've yeah. been there, Dan. We've been there. <laughs> yes. So build relationships um, and you never know what doors will open. I also think just start writing and don't despise small things. So maybe you start mm. writing for your school uh, newspaper, you start writing for your church, or you uh, maybe you start a newsletter or you just uh, take assignments. You you know might write curriculum for uh, which – could really be uh, impactful to millions of people. You might write articles. I would also say not to start with the big project first. So don't think book first. Think I'm going to write a series. I'm going to write articles. I'm going to start just getting that discipline going. Uh, Be unafraid to pitch and say, you know, I would like to write for that outline. I'm going to pitch this idea. They may not take it, but they might. Uh, The last thing I would say is key this is key to writing. I mean, it's just key is to hold your work loosely in the sense that you needed to be, you need to be editable. Mm. Be someone who uh, will take editing. Uh, Don't hold on to every word. Uh, Let people edit you. If you are someone who can turn in copy that people can edit and you're okay with that, you can get a long way. Editors love working with people like that. And I would also add, like, learn how to write quickly and on deadline. Editors mm-hmm. love that. They they all have needs. If you can be someone who's dependable, who can write, who's not thin-skinned about it, about your work, um, I, I like to tell people, like, the thing you're working on now, do do as good as you can do and then turn it in. Like, yep. this is not your magnum opus. You're going to write this. You're going to turn it in. You're going you're gonna to move on to something else. Don't labor and sweat over that next article, like it's, you know, Hemingway, like it's just not like it's, and I think those, those things are good, but you know, if you really enjoy writing and you really want to do it, you will find time to do it. And, and God will open doors. God will direct your steps. Good writing always gets discovered. It just does. Um, and okay. Can I say one more thing? Yes, I'm just kind of a brain dump on this. (laughs) I love it. I do think when when you and I first started, Drew, there was no social media. Now we're gonna sound like old people, but oh man, 
back and when so there was we were able to right. We were able to kind of write in a little bit of obscurity, um, and slowly build a portfolio of writing, which I think is so important. Social media allows you to kind of shortcut that and build yourself up. And, and I'm not anti-platform, but I I get nervous. Like there's no shortcuts to to being good. So right. don't try to be a thing right away, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, write, yeah. get experience. Don't try to be an expert right away. You know, I, I, I know much more when I'm at 43 than I did at like 25, 26 about life. You, yeah. you, you write from the well of your experience, what God's doing in your life. Social media and some of those ways can kind of offer shortcuts to where we can present ourselves as experts, as prophets or as whatever before our time. And you don't get this kind of slow bake of just learning and growing. If that makes sense. It totally does. Um, I think that's such a good word. And it's such a temptation these days for, you know, there's pressure on people like, okay, you got to blow up and become a big deal almost overnight. Um, and especially with writing, there's a craft, there's a, a maturation process. Work on and your craft. Yes. Work on, work on craft. the craft. Yeah. yeah. And just, just work on it. And the, really the only way to get good at it is just to write, just start writing, start yep. writing stuff, whether or not you get published. Um, always be grateful. Gratitude. When like, here's the thing I think about Drew, nobody owes me a byline. Hmm. Nobody owes me to be published. No publisher owes me a contract. Like, right. you know, no publisher owes the risk to take me on to publish a book. Like if we're always grateful and everything, every byline, every published article, every book we see as a, as a gift, then I think we'll stay humble, stay grateful. And it'll, I think, help us creatively too. Yes. Yeah. Such great advice and such a good attitude. I love it. Um, I, I want to encourage uh, listeners to uh, head over and grab a copy of The Characters of Easter. Such a powerful, a beautiful book. I know I'm biased, but it really is. Head over to moodypublishers.com to get a copy. Um, you'll see receive 20% off uh, there, The Characters of Easter. And I want to encourage you, don't just get one copy because this is the perfect kind of book to read with your entire church or, or a small group, maybe, uh, reading it together. And Dan has some great resources on his website uh, that accompany the book, danieldarling.com forward slash Easter. So that's danieldarling.com forward slash Easter to get those resources. This year, this Easter is is a tough one in many respects. I mean, we still have this stupid pandemic going on. Um, I remember last year thinking, you know, at Christmas going, oh, well, by, by this Easter, uh, everything will be back to normal. And I was thinking of last Easter. <laughs> and here we are still not back to normal. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, your church will be gathering this Easter, but it's not going to be the normal sort of setup. Uh, but I feel like this book can really help us see the Easter event of the resurrection with fresh eyes. And like Dan has been talking about, ultimately help you worship the risen King. Um, and I'd also encourage you to connect with Dan on his website. I've mentioned it, danieldarling.com or on Twitter. Uh, his, his handle is just Dan Dar at Dan Darling. And he's one of the five uh, people on Twitter who are, who aren't insane. Uh, I'm one of the other ones. <laughs> it's a small club, but it's a small club, but we're, it's pretty, pretty elite group. Um, 
And if you enjoyed this conversation, please uh, leave us a, a rating or a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. I'm starting to see some of those pop up and they just, they warm the cockles of my heart. So thank you very much <laughs> for doing that. Thank you again for listening. Thanks, Dan, for joining us. And until next time, keep reading and keep writing.